a Podcast One production. What if I told you that there's a secret history of video games? One that you've never heard about. One that's never really been told before. A history that doesn't begin with Atari or Nintendo or Sega or Sony. A history that's not about Xboxes and Playstations. But it goes back a long, long way, almost a century. It's a story that's not about play. It's about the Cold War and an arms race and a battle that no one saw coming. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and play. In this two-part episode, we'll look at the history of war across the 20th century and discover that somewhere near the end of that century, war begins to blend seamlessly with the history of video games. Do the games we play today point to the wars of tomorrow or back to the way we waged wars in the last century? And what happens when, even on a computer, we taste the joys of flight? Along the way, we'll uncover a secret history of video games, an untold story with one foot in the world of entertainment and one foot in the arts of war. War and game pieces on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. I have always wanted to fly. And I don't mean just sit on a seat in an aircraft. I mean fly. In the cockpit, right up in the pointy bit, in the pilot seat. And I'm not the only member of my family with that dream. Well, I've wanted to learn to fly since as early as I can even remember. Our house, the house that I grew up in, is situated right underneath the flight path of our local airport. And so every day I would just be outside playing in the yard and I would look up and I would see the planes flying over all the time. That's my nephew, Andy. He's always wanted to fly, and he got his chance. Well, sort of. I think I realized I was able to actually fly when um, I got the opportunity to visit the USS Midway, which is a floating aircraft carrier that's now a museum in San Diego. Uh, On that aircraft carrier, they have these simulators that are set up that you can sit inside of and you can fly planes from World War II and, you know, shoot down other planes. And when I saw the capabilities of that, I just was totally fascinated by it. I spent all my money on those simulators. And... I remember, I think it was that Christmas, my parents got me a little control stick that I could use to control my aircraft. uh, And I got a simulator that was my first foray or my first entry into that sort of uh, game. And he was hooked from the first time he sat down in the cockpit, even though that cockpit was really just a computer simulation. But that simulation, it reinforced what he knew in his bones, that he wanted to learn to fly. My mom offered to take me to the airport to a flight school there, and we had a little, um, what's called a discovery flight. You just go up for about an hour. Uh, The instructor tells you how to fly, gives you some of the basics, and you go for a short little flight around to see if you're interested in pursuing that as, you know, an actual um, flight lesson, like something you want to take. 
it was easily one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had in my life. It was truly like a pivotal moment when you see everything from the bird's eye view. I often think about the Vinci's quote on how once man has tasted the joy of flight, he will constantly look at the sky wishing to return there because that's exactly how I felt. As soon as I landed on the ground and I got out of the plane, as soon as I got home, I would just spend, I just spent the rest of the day just looking up at the sky and watching all the other planes above. And it gave me such a, a happy feeling. It felt so fulfilling to be free. It was really liberating as the experience. So here I am, sitting in a Cessna 152, waiting to take off at the airport, listening for air traffic control to give me clearance. Now the Cessna 152, it's a common aircraft to use when you're learning to fly. It's what my nephew learned on when he started his flying lessons. All of our aircraft that we have for our instructor, pilot's flight school is um, Cessnas. Uh, and they're from different generations or different eras. So the earliest are the Cessna 152s from the 1950s. Um, then we have the 172s, which are upgraded versions uh, that were pushed out in the 60s and the 70s. And learning to fly? It's not that easy, certainly not at the beginning. You learn to keep an eye on everything. You learn to be keep your eyes open and always be looking around. That's the one thing that the instructors will often tell us is, you look, but don't stare, was the most important thing. So you would glance at a gate to see what it's at, and then you would look away to spot something else. So you would look at the ground, the sky above you, you look for other planes, you look at your gauges, you would look at your controls and see how the aircraft was handling, how it was feeling. So you learn to build that sort of multitasking ability and the ability to just be able to be observant of everything. Instead of your vision panning into this tunnel vision, you learn to open up your vision more and you just start to become observant of everything that's around you. Maintaining that kind of hypervigilance, it leaves me feeling anxious. It feels a lot like I felt when I learned how to drive a car. I remember gripping the steering wheel so tight my knuckles turned white. People ask me how flying is compared to driving a car, and I say, well, it's quite similar. There's, you know, a different level of control because you have to pitch up and all things like that. But the observe observation skills that you develop while driving are also applying to aircraft as well. It's just that you have a lot more detail in the control of an aircraft than you have in a car. So in a car, you can just drive along and not say anything and be to yourself because you can see all the other cars that are very close to you. But in a plane, it's different because all the other planes are filling up the sky around you and you might not be able to see them. So that's why you have the pilots on the radios who are constantly communicating with each other. Cessna Alpha Sierra X-ray Golf Sierra cleared for takeoff runway 24 departure to the north approved. That's the flight tower clearing me for takeoff. I'm nervous, hypervigilant, ready to push the throttle, accelerate down the runway, gathering speed, pulling back on the stick, taking off only. I'm not actually idling on a runway in California. I'm not sitting in a Cessna. I'm sitting in front of my computer, learning how to fly. So let's step back a moment. What are we really talking about? The very first flight simulator, it's known as the Link Trainer. It goes back almost a century. Now, by the middle of the 1920s, air travel, it wasn't exactly common, but it was happening with enough frequency that pilots had to be trained to deal with a range of different flying conditions, maybe rain or a strong wind or snow or fog, and better to learn on the ground than on the fly. 
So the link trainer, it helped pilots learn by doing in simulation so that those pilots would gain a strong body memory of what to do if flying conditions deteriorated. Now, the link trainer was very useful. It wasn't widely used. Then World War II happened, and there was a sudden need to train a lot of pilots, half a million pilots. So the U.S. government, it bought 10,000 link trainers. Training in a flight simulator became standard operating procedure for the military. And when commercial air travel took off after the war, those airlines bought simulators for their pilots to help them train to operate safely in conditions that they hoped that the pilots would never encounter. If the worst happened, those pilots would know what to do. Pilots would fly in simulation again and again and again until they knew in their bones the right actions to take at the right time to save the aircraft and, of course, the passengers. Now, along the way, these flight simulators grew increasingly elaborate. The first link trainers, they were basically mechanical. They didn't use sound or visuals to make the simulation feel more believable. But by the 1960s, commercial flight simulators began to look, sound, and feel more realistic. They wouldn't exactly give you the feeling of flying, but they'd give a pilot a lot more feedback than they'd receive in a link trainer. And every bit of feedback, it helps a pilot build the body memory of what to do when things go wrong. Now, on a parallel track, military simulators where price was no object, they really took off by the 1970s. We've already talked about the astounding career of Ivan Sutherland. Go back and listen to our series 1968 When the World Began, All of it's in there. And after the events covered in that series, in which Sutherland invents interactive computing with a program called Sketchpad, and then virtual reality and real-time three-dimensional computer graphics with his Sword of Damocles, after all of that, he founds the world's leading program in computer graphics at the University of Utah. And he also goes on to found the world's first real-time computer graphics firm called Evans & Sutherland. Now, in the early 1970s, very few could afford the kinds of real-time computer graphics on offer from Evans & Sutherland. The U.S. military could. They bought a lot of these Evans & Sutherland simulators to train pilots of jet fighters and other exotic and expensive pieces of military gear. Believe it or not, it was actually a way to save money. Better for the Air Force or the Navy to plunk a few million dollars down for a simulator than to lose a 10 or 20 million dollar jet and the pilot in a training accident. Ivan Sutherland knew that simulation would save money and save lives. And the money that the Defense Department poured into his firm's simulators, it paid for the development of new innovations in computer graphics. The first Evans and Sutherland simulators look crude to us today, but we're seeing them from the far side of a half a century of improvement in computers. 50 years, during which computers grew a million times faster and a million times cheaper. And with all of those millions flowing into Evans and Sutherland, within a decade, those simulations began to look a lot more realistic. The innovations that were developed by Evans and Sutherland, they shaped much of the world of computer graphics. 
So Ivan Sutherland's contribution to computing, it didn't actually end in 1968. In a lot of ways, that's when it was just beginning, because it's only when real-time three-dimensional graphics left the lab and went to war that they became a massively influential technology, and not just for simulators. Now, in a moment, we'll take a look at the moment simulators cross the gap between a good training tool for a pilot and a great tactical tool on the battlefield. Welcome back to the next Billion Seconds, where we're looking at the past and future of simulation, video games, and war. We've reached the mid-1970s. This is roughly the peak of the Cold War. The contest between the superpowers operated across multiple domains. Not just ideology, not just military power or political spheres of influence, but it also operated economically. The U.S. had an unstated policy of spending the Soviet Union into submission. A very cashed-up America could afford war material and tools and training far beyond the budget or technical capabilities of their adversaries. Now, all arms races are always technological, and the race to the moon, which was an arms race of sorts, it laid the foundations for the modern computer era. The integrated circuits that were wired into Apollo's flight instruments, they became the chips that powered a new generation of small, powerful computers. In the 1970s and 1980s, computers went into everything the U.S. military used. The flight avionics on jet fighters, the targeting and firing systems on naval warships, battlefield command communication and control systems used by the Army, even into the satellites broadcasting the wayfinding signals of the global positioning system, GPS. GPS wasn't invented to help you find your way across town. It was invented to help missiles hit their targets. With all of this military kit getting very smart, all of it required more and more training, and as the Air Force had learned decades earlier, it's cheaper by far to train someone in a simulator than to let them loosen a tank or a jet or a warship before they really knew how to operate it. So the military use of simulation expanded from aircraft to many more of these new smart weapon systems. And it all got very smart in the 1970s. These early simulators, many of them created by Evans & Sutherland, the firm founded by Ivan Sutherland, these simulators were standalone. You plug it in, you turn it on, it simulates a jet fighter or a tank or what have you. A battlefield isn't like that. A battlefield has lots of actors all acting simultaneously, all watching one another, all responding to one another, and all of that's happening all of the time in real time. There's no waiting for someone else to take their turn. So a battlefield, it is a site of intense connected activity. A battlefield is a network. And while it's a fine thing to train a pilot in a simulator all by themselves, that really doesn't offer them the kind of experience that they will have on the battlefield because there are no real adversaries in a simulator. Sure, you can program a few adversaries in, but particularly back in the 1970s, they're not going to be very intelligent. They're not going to do much to respond or anticipate or thwart an attack. To do that, you're going to need to bring in other people in other simulators. And to do that, you're going to need a network to connect those simulators together. And this is where we need to introduce Dr. Mike Zaida. 
you probably won't have heard of him. I know all about him. I've known about Mike for 30 years because his work is so fundamental in the fields of military simulation, virtual reality, and video games. Mike is the human crossover point, as we'll see. And as far as I can tell, hardly anyone knows about Mike or what he did or how much of the modern world is shaped by his work. I hope by the end of this story that'll all be quite clear. But let's start at the beginning where the U.S. military has a need to get all of these very fancy military simulators connected together so that it becomes possible to simulate something like a real battlefield. Here's Mike talking about the very first simulation network that they called SimNet. SimNet is a program from DARPA, and DARPA started in 1983 on trying to build a low-cost network simulation system because at that time... uh, U.S. Department of Defense was spending 20 to 30 to $100 million to get a simulator built. Evans and Sutherland simulators weren't cheap, and networking, something that's nearly free today, that cost even more. And then to network it would again cost another 20 to 30 to $100 million. And they said, we have to be able to do this cheaper. And they started looking at workstation technology in 1983, which wasn't quite ready to be used. But they, they got very excited and they put, I think, $140 million into this program to build low-cost network simulation. So they also had to design, how do you do the networking? They had no idea. And uh, they, a lot of things came out of that program that really found the underlying infrastructure for online games. The problems that the U.S. military needed to solve for themselves, which was connecting all these simulators together to operate as if they were on a battlefield, it turns out that's exactly the kind of problem you'd want to solve in a video game. It comes down to the basic need to see what everyone else on the battlefield or in the game is doing as they're doing it. You know, initially SimNet was was basically everything was on a local area network. And uh, the idea was, you know, if I'm turning left on this SimNet simulator, I want the other people on the other screens to see me making that turn nearly simultaneously. And so there are a whole number of issues. There's latency. You're on one machine, you turn left on that machine, you have to put a packet out onto the network. The, The machine on the other side of the network has to pick up that packet and turn it into a graphics display that says that tank is turning left. That was a big deal. Now, at this point, computer networking mostly consisted of sending emails around or documents, not much more. Certainly, nothing as real-time as the flight controls on an aircraft or the movements of a tank's firing turret. And this is where you need to start to use what they call a packet switch network, where you can take a little bit of data. What is the plane doing right now? What is the tank turret doing right now? Where is its position? What is it pointed at? That becomes a tiny little message that's put into this little data file called a packet. And it's put out on the network and everyone on the network can hear that packet and know what that tank is doing or know what that plane is doing. So SimNet solved that problem for a collection of simulators that were all networked together in the same facility, all connected on the same physical network, which means, yes, the U.S. military invented the LAN party. That's SimNet. And it was good as far as it went, but it stopped at the edge of the building. The military had simulators all over the country, 
And they really wanted to be able to network those simulators together across vast distances to create battlefields with real scale. And fortuitously, the U.S. Defense Department had also been funding something they called ARPANET. That's the earliest version of what we now call the Internet. Now, ARPANET launched in 1969, but it didn't go very far. It didn't go very fast. There was a DARPA program manager who built this thing called Defense Simulation Internet, DSINet. And that played host to, I believe, 11 different sites for SimNet, where at each of those 11 sites, there were between 11 to 50 workstations that were at those sites that were playing against people across the network. And that was, uh, they figured they needed a dedicated network because the internet wasn't super fast back then. I remember in the late 1980s that the internet wasn't fast at all. The military basically threw money at their own private internet. It was connected to the big, slow internet, but much faster so that they could connect all of these simulators together all across America and get a real taste of what a battlefield would be like. And that's something they'd need because at just about this moment in time, along came the Gulf War. Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded Kuwait. U.S. President George H.W. Bush created a vast coalition of allied powers to push the Iraqis out of Kuwait. It was a short war, but that doesn't mean it wasn't brutal. Far from it. It included one of the greatest tank battles of the 20th century, the Battle of 73 Easting. And although it's one of history's great battles, it's actually also an accidental one. On the 26th of February, 1991, a combined force of U.S. and British tanks unexpectedly came across a column of tanks from Iraq's elite Republican guards and then went on to utterly annihilate them. The coalition forces destroyed 160 Iraqi tanks along with 180 personnel carriers, 12 artillery pieces, more than 80 wheeled vehicles. There's only rarely been such a one-sided victory in the history of tank warfare. And this battle, 73 Easting, was a little different. Here's Mike Zaida on why. This is the first battle where every single U.S. vehicle that was in the battle had GPS on it. And they actually were making a real-time recording of the location for all of the tanks. And this this uh, platoon of tanks came upon a whole much larger force of uh, Iraqis. And uh, they basically took them on and had a, had you know a positive outcome for the U.S. And then it was such a fantastic tank victory that when uh, the battle was over, the Department of Defense said, we need to collect all of that data and put that into simulation as a training system. And so all of that data got uh, turned over to DARPA and DARPA went off and, and built a program which was, we're just gonna recreate the Battle of 73 Easting. Each of the US tanks on the battlefield were collecting and recording their operations continuously. They knew where they all were every moment of the battle. And as soon as the battle ended, the Defense Department sent a team in to collect all of that data. And not just from the tanks themselves, they also interviewed all the officers and tank crews to get their own stories of the battle. Now, why would you do that? Well, they wanted to put it all into a networked simulation. The Battle of 73 Easting made the transition from the real world into simulation so that it could be replayed 
thousands of times. Not just to analyze the strategies and tactics of the combatants, but so that the battle could be fought again and again by new generations of tank crews, both as it happened and with an infinite number of variations. After all, it's a simulation. You can change any part of it. You can change the terrain, or the weather, or the battlefield communications, or the air support, or the weaponry, what have you. Change something, fight the battle again, see what happens. And as you do that, you learn, and you learn, and you learn. One of the mottos, I think, from uh, the U.S. Army is, everything that's not war is simulation. And so what they wanted to take that data from 73 Easting was to take future tankers and have them play in that simulation. Uh, they could play the Red Force, they could play the Blue Force, and they could play against the U.S. tanks, or they could play and be the Iraqis, or they could play against the Iraqis and be the U.S. force. And they could do this over and over again and learn exactly what were the tactics that worked. In fact, U.S. tank crews learned so much from working in battlefield simulators, they began to completely outclass their opponents. Uh, in fact, before this happened, um, once SimNet was released out into the U.S. Army as an accurate training system, there had been this thing called the Canadian Cup. And the Canadian Cup was this annual real tank event. It was with real tanks. And it was played against Germany and all kinds of European countries. And it would be played in Canada. And at that point, the U.S. tankers had trained on the SimNet system. And they got to the next Canadian Cup round in real life, and they just stomped everyone. In fact, it, it ended that contest. Because, it, it, you know, what happened was they, they got to, they, they, they beat everyone else so badly that because they were training with simulation that the other people said, you know what, this is not fair. We don't have access to that. And so they stopped the Canadian Cup. And it was, it was one of those open your eyes moments for Department of Defense. You know, that plus 73 Easting. And uh, it, it, it just from there, it was like, we're not going back. We're, we're doing lots of simulation. We're not going back. And it's this point, right after the Gulf War, when simulation takes over. It becomes the standard tool for anyone working in a battlefield situation. It's the way to work through problems, to test solutions, to work on force readiness and training. It also became the foundation for a new generation of entertainment. In our next episode, We'll learn how a research proposal written by Mike Zaida in 1997 changed the world as military simulation crossed over to create a multi-billion dollar industry in video games. That's on the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Has this story gotten you to thinking about the connections between entertainment and war? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, Leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Big thanks to Andrew Hanawa and Mike Zaida for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. Now, if you like this episode, please subscribe. And if you think someone else will like it, please share it with them. This is Mark Pesci. Thanking you for listening.